HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. Whether it's your favorite day of the season or you avoid it like the plague, there's no debating. It's a big day for the world of food and hospitality. Valentine's Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I don't feel that my manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a rosé champagne. It's an old Jamaican drink from way back, and we just decided to bring it back into existence. It's a drink that the men, they believe it really does wonders. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Joining us today from Manchester is food sociologist Alan Ward. Author of over 10 books, Alan's research explores the intersection of food scholarship and sociology. We'll be discussing his thoughts and theories on the sociology of food consumption as found in his books, Eating Out and the Practice of Eating. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alan. Hello. Nice to be with you. So um, I actually want to talk about your email signature. It says you're the Professorial Fellow of the Sustainable Consumption Institute. What exactly does sustainable cons- uh, consumption mean? Uh, sustainable consumption is uh, formulated in, in, in relation to environmental problems and climate change. And uh, one uh, issue would be the extent to which the ways in which we currently consume, the Western world, the whole world, uh, is uh, sustainable over a long period of time, uh, given the uh, changes, in, changes, changes in the environment. And that raises issues of social sustainability as well as uh, uh, natural resources. Mm-hmm. So food is a very interesting kind of issue, given that it's a... a, a, a absorbs lots of uh, uh, lots of such resources so the the institute is interested in the way in which people consume and uh, some of the implications for environmental change mm-hmm. 
Um, so we actually think a lot on the show, I feel like a broken record sometimes, um, about whether our choices or tastes are both deliberate and our own. And do you think that this is the case? And how does your take inform what and how you approach in your research? Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly some approaches are uh, very deliberate. People think about what they're, what they're doing and uh, that's fine. But they very often, I think, uh, exaggerate the extent of their choice because uh, of the way in which the world is is set for them. So uh, I've increasingly become uh, come to the view that people behave in relatively routine and habitual kinds of ways, and they behave in the same sorts of ways as the people around them and the people like them, uh, so that even though one could, in principle, always choose something different, um, something radically different. Most of the time, what people actually consume, the foods they choose, the places they go to, are relatively predictable and patterned. Mm. So there's a pattern for the way in which uh, uh, groups of people, people with the same characteristics, uh, behave, and that suggests that they're, they're not exercising, in a sense, radical free choice. Yeah, I actually, um, I've also mentioned this on the show before, but um, the past month or so I've been obsessed with the idea of making this perfect blood orange olive oil cake. And then I realized I was getting a lot of ads from Amazon and Whole Foods on blood oranges and olive oil. And I started to think, is this a decision that I made of my own or is this something that's been manufactured in me? And so why do you think this pattern exists um, among humans, I guess, as a society? Uh, I think, I don't think it's so much among humans as amongst kind of particular societies at particular points in time. Mm. I mean, clearly the capacity for uh, that form of communication and the impact of commercial communication, which is your adverts for, for your olive oil and blood oranges, um, is, a, is a feature of well, the last 20 years maybe, or possibly 50 years. Um, so the way in which our societies sorry, Western, Western societies of the moment kind of work, uh, that sort of information, you don't have to act on that information, but that sort of information will be readily available to lots of people. And, of course, you will have been targeted because you're a particular potential kind of consumer. So it's uh, the, uh, the, the companies and the advertisers know quite a lot about the way in which um, we we behave and we consume and they try to match uh, the things that they have to sell to the patterns of behavior hmm. of people who might buy their products. So I think that's the explanation of your particular example. Right, yeah. I was going to ask, why, what does exactly um, Whole Foods or Amazon gain from me buying specifically blood oranges or olive oil? Does it just happen to uh, be an object? To consume? No, I think Amazon gets the advertising revenue, does it mm. not? Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm, I'm no expert on that. <laughs> uh, I don't think Amazon probably cares whether you like blood oranges or um, or or, or, or pasta. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as Amazon's concerned, uh, it's it's the intermediary between the a company wanting to sell something and a potential kind of market amongst consumers. Mm-hmm. So let's take 
a bit of a step back. Um, can you give some context as to the scholarship that exists already on consumption, whether food or not, and our understanding of pleasure? Yeah. Um, I mean, consumption was not something that academics studied very carefully until about 50 years ago. And it arose along with the growth of mass consumption as a kind of feature of uh, industrial advanced industrial societies at the time. Um, and uh, initially, people were interested in who could sell what to whom. So market research was a, uh, an important form of knowledge for, from the 1950s, for, and still is, of course. Uh, sociologists got interested in it when they started to think that uh, kind of culture and the way in which, the way in which consumption might affect culture. So um, it, from the basically 1970s, 1980s, people started to think about the way in which people used consumption to express their personal identity or the group that they belong to, their, their, their sense, of, sense of identity. And that generated a lot of, a lot of research about how um, people might uh, use consumption. At the same time, there was a kind of critical account uh, which uh, there were a lot of critical accounts actually, which uh, suggested that consumption was not necessarily uh, a benevolent and beneficial uh, process throughout, and that people, uh, social groups, used consumption in order to express their kind of social social status, social superiority, perhaps. Um, so the ways in which uh, groups of people consume has a symbolic significance in relation to social hierarchy. So there's quite a lot of literature uh, in, in, in that vein. And in the past 10, 15 years, uh, people have oscillated backwards and forwards, I think, between um, seeing consumption as an expression of self and group identity and an expression of uh, power and authority and hierarchy in uh, in consumer consumer cultures, so people can use their cultural knowledge, their uh, their cultural experience, uh, for uh, as a way as a strategic way of managing kind of social relationships to their benefit and, in that sense, to other people's detriment. Right. This makes me kind of think of um, Walter Benjamin and how he kind of warned of our passive consumption of, I think, film or TV and how there's like what we were like we were talking about earlier. There's this illusion of choice, what we decide to consume, but there's also this very passive way of consuming whatever it is we decide to choose or we mm -hmm. ever decide to consume. So when and why would you advise to actually take consumption seriously as a field of study? Um, I mean, the cr critique of, of it being passive uh, is one that's now slightly old. I mean, the, the response to, I mean, there is, a, there is an account of consumption whereby people are kind of manipulated, brainwashed, um, and they simply accept what's given to them. Uh, a perfectly reasonable response to that is that if you look at what people actually do, they're more creative, they resist. Uh, they take things into their own uh, hands as a, as a way of 
um, using consumption for their for their own purposes. So I don't think they're the kind of dupes or fools that some some accounts uh, might suggest. Um, so I think consumption is very multi multifaceted, multi-sided. There are lots of different different aspects to it. But uh, in in recent recent decades, people have become much more aware of the positive benefits of consumption. I mean, you can uh, express identity, you can enjoy yourself, you can uh, use uh, the things that we consume for uh, educational purposes, for recreational purposes. Uh, It often makes people happy. It's consumption is part of fun. So there was a view of consumption that it really was rather bad for us. Uh, it can't be eliminated. So, uh, and particularly, particularly food consumption. Uh, but the, the positive aspects of consumption, I think, were uh, underestimated until about 25 years ago. And Benjamin, obviously, is from a, a slightly earlier generation mm-hmm. in that regard. And so what are the positives? Um, you mentioned creativity, but what else? Creativity, fun, um, and actually political resistance. Some people consume in ways, I think, of subcultures and expressing their discontent with the, with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it encourages an aesthetic way of thinking, so people start to think about the, the things in their everyday life as if in terms of whether they're beautiful valuable or whatever, rather than just taking them for granted. Um, so, and of course, they're, they're practically useful. They make, they make us comfortable. Uh, they, uh, various kind of activities of consumption broaden our horizons and increase our experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, not, it's not all bad. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to, um, you bring up uh, Joanna... Finkelstein's work, which is called Dining Out, and that was also published in a slightly earlier generation, maybe closer to Benjamin, um, which had very similar research aims as you, but she says restaurants are particularly inauthentic context for human interaction because they are organized to determine mood and behavior. So, in other words, um, our choice to consume at this restaurant is very much also a product of someone else's choice and that our experience is decided for us. And so how do we express ourselves individually at restaurants? Uh, I mean, she has a point. I mean, the, 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 uh, clearly restaurants are designed in such a way that people will behave in a relatively predictable kind of way. Uh, they're a setting within which uh, groups of people eating their, eating their dinners with their friends or their their partner or whatever uh, actually operate, um, but the uh, if I remember Finkelstein's argument correctly, I mean she thought that was a, f- a form of kind of um, uh, or almost deception or manipulation. Uh, when I did the first study, that uh, more uh, uh, probably about five years later, uh, we came to the conclusion that that. It's a study I did with Lydia Martins um, that this was a rather one-sided view of what happened in restaurants. And what we did was, I think Joanna Finkelstein simply observed in restaurants 
and speculated about what the meaning of the of the setting was. So it was a, almost a personal personal ethnographic information. We went out and asked people. We asked. We did a survey of a thousand people in three cities in England and talked to some of them quite a lot in in, in depth. Uh, about thirty thirty something of those, and uh, they didn't tell us things that made us think that the the place was uh, uh, in a sense doing them any any real harm or, or damage I mean one of the things that we find is that um, people value very highly the the sociability and the the companionship and the conversation that goes on in in restaurants um, and I don't think that is particularly determined by uh, the restaurateur. So the, rest, the restaurateur sets, sets a context. People can then decide whether they want to be in that context. Uh, they, are, they operate more or less autonomously as a group uh, within, within, within the restaurant. Uh, restaurants are very orderly places, I, I think, um, because people understand in a sense, the rules of the, the rules of the game, the rules of behaviour. Um, whether that is something which uh, kind of undermines the authenticity of their interaction or damages their social relationships, we weren't at all clear. Because what we found was that people thought being in restaurants was absolutely wonderful, basically. Mm-hmm. So we, we asked one of those survey questions: Do you like something you know, a lot, a little? dislike it, whatever. And we asked people about the the last time they were in a restaurant eating a main meal, eating a dinner, big dinner. Um, you know, did you like the food? And 90% said they liked the food a lot. Did you like the conversation? 98% people, people liked the conversation. Did you like your companions? 95% of them liked them a lot. There was a little bit of less kind of uh, certainty about service but basically overall people think being in restaurants are wonderful because it's a very sociable place to be and uh, it gives them kind of new new tastes so it has a sensual aspect to it it's it's, it's the food that they're eating and uh, it's at least in the UK one of the most perhaps the most popular recreational activity so uh, the idea that uh, that the that the restaurant is is somehow uh, kind of making them passive or damping down their activity or reducing their potential didn't seem to us to be um, the the right overall conclusion mm-hmm. to draw. Yeah, actually, when I read her um, argument, I took it a slightly different way in in maybe the um, Mm -hmm. previous step where we choose restaurants not unlike how we choose Netflix TV shows where we choose a setting that we um, want to feel a certain way in. For example, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with how Netflix kind of recommends... I I haven't read the book for a long time. Uh, I mean, I think people do choose the sort of place uh, where they will feel... Uh, reasonably comfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things about the changing restaurant world in in in, in Britain was that in the seventies and eighties, people might feel rather uncomfortable 
in, in some sorts of restaurants. And people, uh, largely because they were too formal. Mm. So, um, you know, I remember that the, when you were supposed to wear a tie to go to a restaurant, which uh, doesn't, doesn't happen anymore in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were a bit scared of the, of the head, head waiter or the, the, <laughs> the, the sommelier, and they were a bit uncertain about manners and uh, how to behave. That's pretty much disappeared now mm-hmm. as, 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 uh, as the places have become more informal and people have got used to going to restaurants. So people in the UK really kind of, there's, there's a, a change about 50 years ago when people eaten out in restaurants because they had to because they weren't at home and there was nobody, there was no means of getting food other than eating out. But it was not a very important uh, symbolic or cultural activity. People learned to enjoy it in a sort of way. Mm-hmm. And lots more people, the upper middle class always enjoyed it. Uh, but it became much more common for everybody, all sorts of people, to go to restaurants. When they didn't know a great deal about it, and lots of people were relatively uncomfortable and it was difficult. As it's become a much more familiar experience, which it has done steadily over the last 50 years, people are much more, uh, much more comfortable, much more familiar, mm-hmm. much easier, much easier to manage. Um, so uh, they, one of the ways that's been achieved is by going to... Uh, the sorts of place that is suitable for the occasion that you want to to have. So, uh, if I'm going to take my uh, my parents out for for dinner, I will take them to somewhere different from my uh, uh, a, fa- a family a family gathering with my uh, children and my brothers and sisters, for instance. And that's sensible, I think. So, people are increasingly practically skilled in choosing places which will make the kind of social event that they're concerned about uh, a, a satisfactory one, one where everybody enjoys themselves. So I don't think um, that uh, it's quite like, it's, it's not quite like Netflix. I mean, I mean, People do like restaurants, or the food in restaurants at least, to challenge them to some uh, significant degree. So when we, re- the study I talked to you about, I repeated it again 20 years later. So two or three years ago, I did the same study again. Um, and uh, the, lost my train of thought, uh, that uh, kind of gave evidence of the way in which people kind of fit their uh, fit their purposes mm-hmm. to to particular settings yeah if I may so stubbornly persist my Netflix metaphor it kind of reminds me of um, you sometimes want to be the person that selects the artful tasteful documentary on Netflix but sometimes you also don't have you, you just happen to default to a certain comedic show that you've watched again and again. And so if we may extend that metaphor and 
apply that to how we choose restaurants. What does choosing to eat with your parents or someone you want to impress at Noma say about you and your choices versus eating at, you know, the neighborhood restaurant that you know and love and can rely on? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's important that people can do both of those things, and they do, or some people do both of those things. So lots of people, when we ask them, have you been to the restaurant that you last reported before, most of them say yes. The majority of people have been to the restaurant before. Uh, but if you ask people uh, about do they uh, like to try new foods, uh, uh, do they, have they learned about uh, food and eating and dishes by going to restaurants, have they learned things on holidays, They've, a lot of people say yes. And there is one of the key changes over the last 20 years is that people have become more adventurous, and more, more interested in trying, for instance, foreign cuisines. Very, very clear that that's, that that's the case. Um, so uh, if I want to impress my, uh, my professorial friends, I may take them somewhere where the food is exotic or different or, or whatever. If I uh, go out with my parents, they will probably choose the restaurant. So one of, the, one of the things about restaurants is that lots of times you end up in restaurants where you haven't done any choosing. So one of the most fascinating questions uh, in, the, in the survey in 1995 was, did you have any choice in where you went? And about 40% of people said no. Um, you get taken. Somebody else makes the decision. So the idea that, uh, I mean, uh, that everybody individually is making endless decisions about which restaurant to go go to simply isn't isn't the way things work that's not that's not how it's done you go in a sense where you're told to go or where your friends want you to go or where you always went for thanksgiving dinner or or whatever so there are lots of different uh kind of scenarios and settings and processes um but on your last question, I mean, do do people uh, want to impress other people? Yes, sometimes they do. And uh, people do accumulate experiences of a variety. I mean, the, the, a key theme in all the things that we've studied is the, the value of variety. I mean, restaurants produce a huge diversity of cuisines and atmospheres and settings and forms of service and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And people, uh, ordinary people in the street, want more variety. Mm -hmm. Some people actually get more variety than others do. And that's related to uh, people's resources, to their cultural knowledge and skill, to their social class. Uh, to their to their ethnic group and for various various other kinds of things that interest sociologists. Um, so uh, certain kinds of restaurant experience are more highly valued than others. And you mentioned Noma. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. not everybody gets to go to Noma. Yeah, definitely. Indeed, large number of people would never want to go. Sonoma, uh, but it does have some kind of status because it's gastronomically uh, highly highly valued. 
uh, and the kinds of people who have the gastronomic knowledge or interest and indeed also the, the uh, financial resources um, are a particular uh, particular section of the population. They tend to be in uh, professional and managerial jobs. They have university degrees. Uh, they're, they're fairly well off. Um, they have friends who also think that being very interested in food is a good idea. Um, and they also mostly have parents who were professional and managerial workers as well. So they different groups of people go to different places. But the thing about eating out is you can do it you know, three times a week. I mean, people do it about once every 10 days on average. But you can go to lots of different places and have a wide variety of experiences if you want to. Some people do, some people don't. Um, but there is uh, some kind of social and symbolic significance to having a very wide experience mm. of different sorts of cuisines and activities. And it would seem that um, if you, I mean, people, one of the other key themes is people want to be comfortable in the restaurants that they go to. They don't want to feel uh, too challenged or whatever. Um, and the peop some people feel comfortable in lots of places, lots of different types of places, and other people feel comfortable in a more limited range of places. What I think now happens is that people go to the sorts of places that they can handle reasonably uh, comfortably because it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a nice, uh, it's primarily a nice social activity. Mm -hmm. That's what people really appreciate, the sociability, being with and conversing with uh, your friends and friends and associates. Often I think the food is almost, uh, it's certainly not secondary. Everybody's concerned that the food is uh, both appropriate and of acceptable quality. But in many cases, it's not the most important thing. So if it's not the most important thing, going to your neighborhood in Britain, it would be your neighborhood Italian or your neighborhood rest, Indian restaurant, um, quite often uh, makes a good deal of sense. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break, but when we get back, I do want to get right back to what um, you said about those individuals in the dinner parties who actually didn't have a choice in where they ended up eating. So, yeah, okay. hang tight. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. 
Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org slash events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. So we were talking about the um, our choice to go to certain restaurants because they make us feel comfortable. And I want to talk about kind of the unspoken etiquette that happens at a restaurant. Namely, when you are eating in a big group of people and you are not the one that chose the restaurant. And you, you mentioned this, which I thought was really funny. You're not really allowed to complain about the choice of restaurants. So can you explain why and I guess the, the mental process that go back, goes behind this? Um, obviously, it depends. Depends upon. I mean, if you've been invited to, to a restaurant and you've accepted the invitation, uh, you tend to uh, not want to tell your host or your hostess uh, that they've made a rotten choice. It would be both rude and uh, probably uh, kind of damage damage your your friendship or your or your, or your relationship. Um, the it's inter- it's interesting that people. People don't like complaining. So when you ask a question in a survey, would you complain if the, if the uh, kind of the food was bad or whatever? Lots of people say yes. And then when you talk to them about their actual experiences, they give you all sorts of reasons why they wouldn't actually complain. And mostly it's because it upsets the the, nat- the nature of the interaction around the table. If you start kind of complaining to the to the to the staff the the atmosphere changes it's no longer a convivial um friendly amusing kind of activity it adds a a kind of bite and an edge to it and people have kind of loathe loathe to complain and sometimes in in interviews they describe you know the food was too salty Fifteen minutes longer for my dinner to arrive, and uh, my my dining companion's dinner to arrive. Um, the food wasn't very nice, but actually we enjoyed the occasion altogether, so we didn't complain. Um, so people are a bit embarrassed about complaining, but they're probably more concerned with what what it does to the um, to the atmosphere around the table. I mean, we also get people in interviews saying. I hate going out with my sister-in-law because she always complains <laughs> and it makes the, the event uh, a kind of miserable and edgy uh, kind, of, kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also... But, partic- um, but particularly if, if you're the guest, uh, you're unlikely to, uh, to want to uh, challenge your host's or hostess's uh, uh, judgment. Or, and, and indeed, it's, it's actually thought of that it's the responsibility of the person who's in charge of the table, so to speak, to do the complaining. So mm-hmm. if they don't want to complain, uh, you can't complain over their heads. 
is 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 is, is part of what people t- tell me is mm-hmm. the etiquette. Yeah, that that's you wanted to know. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was about to mention. I thought it was really neat to um, hear someone validate that. Uh-huh. There is someone that's been established as the leader of the group, and you kind of all default to that person because they pick that restaurant, and it's only okay to complain once that person complains. Yes, I think that I think that's 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 right. I mean, the, 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 the I mean, our studies were interested in people's uh, in domestic hospitality, in 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 dinner parties and kind of meals that. Uh, people provide in their own homes for their friends and for other people uh, other kin who don't live in the same place um, and uh, there clearly there is a uh, well, there used to be a very strong understanding that the, the event was orchestrated and run by the, the host and hostess who provided the food and you certainly wouldn't complain if uh, oh sorry i have never complained uh, to anybody who's invited me out for dinner about the quality of their cooking or the way they've organized the way they've organized the dinner and there is a uh, eating in restaurants has some kind of echo or relation relationship to much longer traditions of what is hospitality and who's hosts and guests um and the uh, to some extent, I think the the norms and conventions of the dinner party are observed in restaurants. Uh, and certainly, certainly, I mean, it, it may depend upon who's paying, um, and it may depend upon who's made the decision to go in the first place. Because sometimes it's a collective decision. Lots of people go to the same place with the same friends many times. Then, presumably, anybody can complain. So it does depend a bit on on the setting and on the social relationships between the people who are, uh, in a sense, at the table. Mm -hmm. They will vary quite a lot from situation to situation. So you also talk about um, variety and choice and about our shifting line between what's necessary versus a luxury. And I think this also... Um, ties into what quote-unquote ethnic restaurants have made into the mainstream. So first, let's talk about um, this differentiation between necess- necessities and luxuries and what this exactly means for our future of food. Um, when I do that, I sort of think, you know, eat, eating, eating is necessary. Uh, it has to be done in some, in some kind of uh, minimal uh, way to satisfy, to satisfy health. The cultural alternatives for ways in which we can have uh, such a, a diet or obtain uh, the kind of foods that are contribute to our dietary intake over, you know, a year or or twelve months are are, are, enor- are really enormous, enormous, enormous variety. Um, so the, the necessity is a kind of biological one whether we eat in a kind of abstemious and um, frugal kind of way or whether we go for uh, uh, caviar and caviar and truffles uh, is uh, in a sense a, 
a kind of group and cultural cultural matter of, uh, and say different different people would do that in a, in a different kind of way I mean usually what the term luxury is is a relative one uh, what was a luxury in uh, in the 16th century is now commonplace um, I like to think of asking people what they think are necessary and, and what is luxury and the the view of that would change from country to country and from period to period to period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got uh, used to kind of more elaborate and more um, more varied food, I think, in the period since the Second World War. Um, so what's a luxury becomes... I mean, luxuries are always somewhat rare and somewhat expensive. So what they what they might be at any one point in time or in any any particular place uh, is just relative to what would be a very uh, kind of ordinary or minimal kind of diet mm-hmm. so that's what i think luxuries are anyway um, yeah so what the, does choosing these rare or expensive foods convey about the person in the same way that um being very versed or nimble among different cultures cuisines what do those two things signify yeah, about the person? I mean, I think that's yeah, that's that's an, that's an important point. Um, some people in a, in our in our most recent study, we find about ten percent of the of the people who answered the survey would correspond to kind of a group of food enthusiasts, foodies, and might be a, an, an unfair term but people who are really concerned about the food that they eat they're deeply interested in it they buy from um, specialist food shops rather than from supermarkets they go out to restaurants a lot they entertain people a lot they uh, they say they like cooking they take a great deal of interest uh, and uh, time and concern, and they talk about food in a uh, a very knowledgeable kind of way, um, and they value uh, things that other people that the that the mass of uh, the population probably would neither want nor be very interested in in trying. Um, there are two aspects to that. I think one is that. Just some people are interested in food. Really, a small number of people are very interested in food as an, a matter of aesthetics, of gastronomy, of kind of cultural competence, of knowledge. And they like to talk about food, and they, they're very knowledgeable about it. Most people don't like that. The people who are uh, food enthusiasts, on the other hand, tend to be people with I said before, university degrees in professional occupations with parents who were also in professional occupations. Um, uh, and it's it's quite difficult to tell whether uh, what they're doing is making a social statement about their position in the world or whether they're just being very enthusiastic about a particular activity. Um, so instead of being a, an opera buff or a... Uh, uh, going to the cinema three times a week and being an expert in, in film, they're just experts in food, or 
is it a statement about um, a special form of knowledge, capacity for judgment, um, uh, a, a knowledge of international cuisine, of a cosmopolitan approach to um, their activity more generally? And what other bits of research tend to suggest is that people who are um, uh, um, this foodie group is likely also to have a kind of varied taste in cinema and music and um, the visual arts and and so on. Um, So there is a a form of kind of cultural cultural capacity, cultural competence, which is exhibited in the field of food, which is also exhibited in, in, in other in other cultural contexts, and which can easily be read as a statement of, about the the status of, of those people mm-hmm. that they, they are seems... knowledgeable and confident and capable. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it also seems a bit odd then that things like Soylent or nutrition bars um, or even just pills that replace your meal are also very popular. And and can you explain how those two can coexist? Um, I mean, those sorts of things coexist because there are lots and lots of different ways in which you can kind of satisfy nutritional capacities. Um, I'd be surprised if the people who go to Noma eat a lot of actually no maybe I'm not uh, nutrition bars the thing is I mean you you can do both things at once uh, I doubt whether eating nutrition uh, bars is highly symbolic it might be symbolic within certain sorts of subgroups possibly um, but I can eat those and I can go to Noma uh, there's no contradiction in, in that regard and there's some sense in which um, people who are very interested in food will try almost anything and everything. How long they keep, they continue to do the various alternative ways of eating. That's that's a, that's a different matter. Um, but I don't I don't I don't think there's any real contradiction between uh, eating eating nutrition pills sometimes and going to smart restaurants on other occasions. Mm. I don't think the people who go to smart restaurants would eat pills all the time and give up the restaurant. Mm. I think maybe it's less a comment on intellect and maybe more a comment on economics or social class. Maybe it's like a way of signifying, I can afford to eat an acai bowl or a pill and in very nice looking packaging in the same way that I would choose to spend my money on a Noma meal. And I, I guess I was just interested to hear your thoughts on how we use those choices to convey something to our peers? I, I, I mean, w- one can use the things that become symbolic in relation to being either, in this that case, maybe a good citizen or being a, uh, at, the, at the head of a, a trend in food consumption. Mm. Um, they can be very, very different, very variable. It's over, over long periods of time, the things that are um, symbolically visible tend to uh, 
over time longer than some uh, kind of maybe fashions for particular kinds of products. Uh, I wouldn't like to predict what the, the I wouldn't like to predict anything. Sociologists aren't very good at predicting um, what the what the future of those uh, nutrition bars might be. Um, but they probably have a limited lifetime as a symbolic expression of what sort of a, uh, a kind of group identity you might happen to espouse. Mm-hmm. On that note, um, <laughs> I think we're going to end the conversation there. That was a really <laughs> ironic and kind of depressing note, but I think that's perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alan. Okay, thanks. Nice to talk to you. Okay, goodbye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.